Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, local MPP Donna Skelly says the provincial government cannot support the Hamilton Commonwealth bid because, well, it clashes with the province's move to land the World Cup that same summer. Should the city not pursue the bid then? We'll talk about it. Donald Trump continues to downplay the virus. Moments after he was discharged from the hospital, he tweeted, don't be afraid of COVID. Talk about the impact that that had. And officials at the Ontario Public Health are advising folks to have their Thanksgiving dinners with immediate families only. Nobody outside of the immediate family. Are people going to follow that? Stick around. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The provincial government may not be supporting uh, Hamilton's bid for the 2026 Commonwealth Games. Uh, local MPP Donna Skelly says that her government will or cannot support a Hamilton pitch to host the Commonwealth Games in 2026, but a private group behind the proposal is holding out hope that that's not the case. Uh, we did reach out to Donna Skelly. She's unavailable today. I uh, texted back and forth with Health Mayor Fred Eisenberger. He's in the middle of a meeting right now. Uh, but the mayor told me that he had a discussion with uh, Premier Ford about a week or so ago uh, where Ford gave not necessarily an endorsement to it, but said he was very interested in helping out. Uh, let's get some details on that. So it wasn't a no. So this is kind of a shock, I guess, to an awful lot of the people involved in the bid, uh, Lou Forporti and so many others. You may remember that uh, we've been following this bid process over the last number of months, of course, on our program. Uh, a little while ago, we had P.J. Mercandy from the Carmen's Group, who's a member of the Hamilton 2026 Commonwealth Games Committee, and he was telling us that, well, this is more than just about an athletic event. It's not just about the two weeks of sport. It's about uh, investing in affordable housing and accelerating tourism and other de- economic development opportunities uh, born out of the games and in, in leaving a, a social impact footprint that will be felt for the next 100 years. Having said that, uh, thank you, P.J. McKinney. This is a, not without controversy, of course. Uh, it does not have unanimous support on council. I'm not even sure if it has a majority support on council because uh, they never actually had an up-and-down vote on it yet. But uh, are the community folks that are concerned about this buying into the arguments that this is more than sports and this could actually uh, be a boost to help us get out of this post-COVID uh, economic conundrum that we seem to be in? I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Not the first time that you and I have talked about Commonwealth bids for Hamilton. Uh, third one, I guess, now that we're, if we're counting at home. Uh, but uh, this one seems to have a little bit of uh, more oomph behind it. Well, maybe the first one did, the one that McMaster was involved in with Peter George and a number of other people. We got right to the finish line on that one. But basically... As we've discussed with the Commonwealth Games International Committee, they're handing this to Hamilton on a silver platter. Do you want this or not? Right. And Bill, if you don't mind, if you, if you saw the story today, what Donna said was uh, the province isn't interested in putting money behind this because it prefers to put money behind the World Cup. Now, this is probably news to a lot of people. World Cup, what are you talking about? So let me just talk for a minute about that, and then we'll come yeah, back please. to the Commonwealth Games side of this. The World Cup, which is the biggest event in soccer, as you know, was awarded for 2026 to a joint bid between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. There are to be 60 games played in the United States, 10 games played in Canada, 10 games played in Mexico. And uh, as is often the case, you want to showcase the countries. So three cities in Canada are supposed to host games. That's Edmonton, Toronto, and Montreal. Uh, there's 10 cities, excuse me, uh, yes, 10 cities in the United States and three more in Mexico that are also going to host games. So here's what's up for grabs in terms of the World Cup. Ten games in Canada, three cities. Most likely they'll try to be even. It'll be three, three, and four. 
and I think probably the hope is that Toronto will get to host four of these games. None of them are playoff games, and none of them are the finals or the quarterfinals or the semifinals. They'll be just sort of the regular part of the World Cup. And what Donna basically said in the newspaper was that uh, the province would prefer to support trying to get the four games to Toronto than they would the Commonwealth Games here in Hamilton. And I think why that has come as a shock to some people is that the Commonwealth Games, though profile is huge, the profile of the World Cup, it, some can argue, is the biggest event, even bigger than the Super Bowl when it happens. Uh, it, it doesn't have the spin-off benefits. And I think this is the argument that PJ and Lou and others are making, that if Hamilton hosts uh, the Commonwealth Games, uh, we'll be able to do some social housing. We need first housing for the athletes, but then when the athletes are gone, that housing can be converted for social purposes. There would be refresh of infrastructure. McMaster is slated to have a refresh of a pool. Redeemer is Redeemer College is looking at, uh, excuse me, Redeemer University is looking at a refresh of a multi-sports building that's there. And so that, you know, there would be other benefits to the community, whereas I think if Toronto hosts four World Cup games, They'll most likely be, most likely be at Rogers Center, and um, I'm not sure there'll be any new infrastructure. The athletes aren't going to be living in a village. These are almost pro soccer players, so I'm sure they'll be in, you know, the the Royal York or some other lovely hotel accommodation. It, it, I, I get that the profile is probably bigger from the World Cup, but I think the community benefits are much higher here in Hamilton. Here's the thing, and, and uh, listen, we're not lost about the World Cup situation. I remember having uh, Nick Bottas, who was part of the Canadian contingent, uh, he called from Moscow in the program a little while ago, remember when it was awarded to North America, and we were all excited about that. Uh, and we still are excited about that because, it's, as you say, it's one of the premier sporting events in the world, probably bigger than the Olympics. Having said that, uh, I, I think there's a certain amount of resentment that some people are going to uh, feel because of the, of the logistics of this. Uh, because there does seem to be an upside to Hamilton to host the, these games, uh, the, being the Commonwealth Games, of course. Uh, but it sounds as if, from what Donna Skelly is saying, is the province says, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to give you guys any money. We're going to put all our support and all our money behind uh, a bid, which is basically a Toronto-centric bid. This isn't going to do anything for anybody else. And, and and I can understand a lot of people in the city right now saying, there we go again, Hamilton gets, or Toronto, Hamilton gets nothing, Toronto gets everything. Yeah, well, I, I have a little sympathy to that. It, you know, it would be a different situation if the uh, sports minister came out and said, look, you know, your local MPP pitched for the uh, Commonwealth Games to your city, and the people from Toronto pitched for their city, and we had to weigh one against the other, and I'm sorry, Hamilton, you lost. It's odd that the Hamilton MPP is the one who's delivering the news that says, uh, yeah, we're all fine, we're going to support Toronto and not you. Now, I guess it's also fair to know that the a conservative government in Queen's Park, uh, who, who's really underneath it all wanting to have balanced budgets and is not big on a lot of broad public spending to begin with, realizing they're probably going to have to do something coming out of COVID, but they're going to try to probably do less than a liberal government might. We see, what, for instance, what Ottawa is doing with the COVID and, and really sort of opening the purse wide. I don't think that's in Doug Ford's DNA, but I would much prefer to hear that, look, we, we had a competition. I tried my best for you, if I'm speaking as Donald Skelly. I tried my best, but look, we lost out at the end. That I think we'd understand. It, it just feels a little odd to have your local MPP stabbing you in the back before you even get off the blocks.
Well, and there and there is the frustration that we're feeling here because, like I say, we've had a couple of shots. This will be our third shot at trying to bid for the Commonwealth Games. And I know that uh, that the Hamilton uh, 2026 bid team have, have done a lot of spade work on this. They've had some independent financial analyses done of this. And, uh, you know, they've, they've mentioned those numbers on the air. And there does seem to be uh, some benefit to the city of Hamilton, long-term benefit, because we've seen this happen with other Commonwealth Games too. So I'm not going to try to bid, you know, put one against the other in situations like that. And I, I think we're all aware, Marvin, of the uh, the economic situation that the province and the country is in right now. Sure. Uh, but if they're going to use that as a barometer, then why are they getting behind the World Cup too? Because that's going to cost them a whole lot, and there's essentially no payback there. Yeah, that's that's the part of it. I mean, I, we certainly get profile, but I think sometimes we overestimate the profile from these sporting events. Uh, if I asked you, Bill, uh, who who hosted the games in 2018, or excuse me, the, the not the games, the uh, World Cup in 2018, or who hosted the World Cup in 2014? Do you remember when that game was played in such and such a stadium? I think your answer is going to be no. I don't remember it. It's it's big news at the moment, but the lasting news is very small. And I think going after these big sporting events for the publicity side is completely wrong. There really is very little lasting value for this. Take the Commonwealth Games. Uh, they were last held uh, in 2018. Do you remember where that was? It happens to be an area of Australia called the Gold Coast, but most people wouldn't know that. The 2026 games are interesting. They were awarded to another group of people who are not able to follow through. And so the Commonwealth Games organization has to find a host, and they have to find a host quickly. This is why they've offered a chance for Hamilton to sort of have a fast-tracked, no-competition bid. We lost our first Commonwealth Games bid against New Delhi, India. Uh, and there was a lot of talk at the time that the New Delhi bid was sort of, for lack of a better term, bribed into existence, small nations were given some money to help their athletes get to the New Delhi Games. Um, and, and so, you know, here's, here's basically some cash to help you. It's not cash into your pocket, but cash into the Athletic Association, uh, which Canada chose not to do. We said that's not the way we want to play the game. And we, we lost narrowly. If we go after the 2026 Games, there's a pretty good chance they'll just be handed to us. And I think the other question that PJ and their group are looking at, because the original plan was the 2030 games, that would be the centennial of it being hosted here in Hamilton, all, all just kicked off here in Hamilton even, um, there's been some suggestion that we might get it two times in a row. So the investment in 2026 could be leveraged in 2030, and you could host the games twice at a much lower cost than you normally would. Even as it is, the Commonwealth Games bid that Hamilton's putting together for 2026 is estimated on the order on the scale of around $250 million. Typically, it's more like a half a billion dollars or even more. There's been a couple of sports dropped, a couple of venues they don't need to create. Again, this is how, how important this is to the Commonwealth Games Association. There is a unique envelope here. And, and again, I'm not trying to argue for these. I know there are some people just on principle who say, I don't like these sporting events. This is money that could be used in other ways. But I, I think this one gives you a much better return than the World Cup ever would. The other element to this is is the discussions I've had with the Commonwealth Bid Committee, and, and, and but also with the Commonwealth International Games, the, the head honchos, the, the big cheese patties that make the decisions. And and just to paraphrase the, the message I think we were getting from them, Marvin, and I've had a couple of different conversations with them now on the show, is uh, the games for 2026 are yours. 
if you want to say no and think you're going to get 2030, uh, all bets are off. And, who, you know, you're going to go into a competition just like everybody else. Uh, and the insinuation beyond that was if you say no to 2026, don't even bother with 2030 because you've already said no to us. So, you know, I, 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 there's some politics being played here, as there always is uh, with the, the, you know, the delegation of these international games. And, and, and I think it's being characterized as this is your shot. Do you want it or not? And that's why I think it's a little disheartening to hear the, the provincial response, if in fact this is the official response. Yeah. Uh, now, Bill, I'll also say there is a little gamesmanship here. Um, uh, Commonwealth Games are getting expensive for Commonwealth nations to put on. Uh, pretty much there's been a rotation between Australia, England, Canada, occasionally New Zealand stepping up. We saw India step up once. But they are getting expensive, and most nations in the Commonwealth can't host them. So although there would be a competition for 2030, I think what Hamilton was hoping for was the centennial aspect, let's take the games back to where they began, would be important. And, and I'm not sure you're going to be facing, you know, seven challengers or ten challengers for the 2030 games. If, for instance, we don't host the 2026 games, let's assume a, another country steps up. I'll just make up a name and say New Zealand. I don't think New Zealand would be in the running again in 2030. So it would be the, sort of the same two or three countries that we see over and over again. In fact, there is some discussion that if we don't step up for 2026, I'm not sure anybody else will. Perhaps they won't even happen, and that could even begin to be the end of the Commonwealth Games as a as a sporting event. So I don't think Hamilton has zero leverage here. Yes, yes, we're helping you out, and yes, you're giving us something wonderful, but we need each other in this. This isn't so much that you can you know, threaten to take your ball and run to another play, playground. We both need to be in this together. All right. I'm just thinking out loud here, okay? Uh, we have an economic crisis because of COVID. We all know that. That's worldwide. So it's not as if we have to school them on what's going on here. Given that scenario and given that that's probably one of the influences where the province is saying, look, we can't do both here. Why don't we go back to the Commonwealth Games Committee and said, look, because of this and because of the economic crisis, why don't we do the 2026 games in 2027? And and that way, I, it, I know it throws off the schedule, but you can still do the other ones, the 2030 games, the 100th anniversary, three years later. But it gives everybody an economic leg up to say, look, at now we can probably get this thing done. Yeah, I hear you, and I think that's a very clever thing to put forward. But I would also like to say that this, the cost of these games is budgeted in around the, the $250 million mark. Just to compare that, do you remember this little thing we were going to build called an LRT? Do you remember the budget for that? That was $1.5 billion dollars. You can get six Commonwealth Games for one LRT. Yes, $250 million is a lot of money. I understand to an individual it's a huge amount of money, but to governments, it's really not that much. And it's not clear to me actually how much support the World Cup being held in Toronto is going to require. Um, you know, the venue's already there. Now, they're not building a new venue. They're not building uh, athletic uh, uh, housing for this. So what what would the what would the province actually have to invest in this? My my feeling is that the province putting money into hosting those four World Cup games, yes, security would be a big part of this and policing would be a big part of this, but I have a hard time seeing the price tag being more than 30, 40 million dollars to do both. It isn't really that much of a stretch. Again, if you think about 
about it in terms of infrastructure and economic development coming out of, of COVID-19, it just feels like a little too convenient of an argument to me. It's almost, again, like canceling the LRT. There was some weird accounting that went on there to justify it. I think if you went through a little more cold-hearted analysis, you'd see you could probably do both without much problem at all. Well, the other element to this, too, is and we want to remind everyone that this is not the official position of the government. Uh, you know, this is not the minister in charge of, of this particular portfolio. It's not the premier that's making this statement. As a matter of fact, as Mayor Eisenberger told me, the premier actually seemed quite supportive when he talked about it the other day. So I, I guess it's not over yet. City Council is, uh, is entertaining this uh, committee once again tomorrow at one of their meetings. And uh, I'm told, uh, because we reached out to just about everybody this morning, Marvin, uh, there are a series of meetings going on, I guess, as, as a result of this story today. So uh, we'll let the dust settle on this one and see what's going to happen over the next few days. Always so appreciate... Let me just give you one more yeah, go ahead. one here. Yeah. Just to remember that whatever the promise was putting in was also supposed to be matched by the federal government. We haven't heard yep. that the federal government's not interested. Again, it would be a, a, what an awful waste if we could match whatever the province puts in with the federal government to put into the Hamilton area. I'd hate to leave those dollars on the table, too. Well, as Yogi Berra said and uh, Casey Stengel said, it ain't over till it's over. Right. So we'll see how this plays out. Thanks again, Marvin. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, Donald Trump was discharged from Walter Reed Hospital in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and it was a very choreographed and uh, obviously rehearsed uh, exit uh, strategy. I mean, uh, it was made for TV, like most of the things Donald Trump does. Uh, there was an expectation, maybe not an expectation, but a hope that after having gone through what looked like a pretty serious uh, bout with COVID, which is not over yet, by the way, uh, that it might have changed Trump's attitude about COVID, uh, the cavalier attitude that he's taken ever since uh, the virus came to our attention uh, almost eight months ago now. Uh, but he released a, a statement, uh, a video, just before uh, he went back to the White House, which pretty much indicates that it's uh, the same old Trump. Here's what he had to say. I went, I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. Well, that's uh, shaken a lot of people up, especially some of the families of the over 210,000 people that died from the COVID virus that didn't get the kind of attention that Donald Trump got. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Laura, thank you for the time today. Good morning. As somebody who studies messaging and, and, and body language and everything else, uh, I, I don't necessarily think anybody was expecting a humbled Donald Trump. But once again, after what he's gone through, he's downplaying the virus, and apparently he is Superman who's overcome it. Well, there's so many aspects to this. It's, you know, a, a day in Trump land is like a month in terms of all the different tactics that they use. And, and Trump's always been really brilliant at spinning and at selling an idea, even if it's in the face of contrary evidence. He's always been very good at that. There's a, there's a level of kind of Barnum and Bailey brashness to what he does. And so there are a lot of messages that have been sent since this all started. And one of the concerns for people who watch his messaging, myself included, was that, of course, nobody wanted him to die. I think that Americans really need to have this election for a whole host of reasons. And you don't want to see somebody die of such a terrible disease. Uh, the other thing is, is that we also didn't want him to use this as uh, some sort of a, a hero 
a hero bumper sticker now that he's got, right? If he did emerge from this, getting special care, getting, you know, airlifted to the best, one of the best hospitals in the world, getting a, a compassionate cocktail of drugs that nobody else can get or, or only 250 people have even gotten through a trial, but he gets it, right? Getting all kinds of special provisions and, and the way we would want a leader of the world to be treated, of course, you want them to get the best access to medical care. They have a huge responsibility and it would destabilize the world if anything should happen. But for him to get all of that and then to emerge and say, listen, uh, I'm super fantastic because I'm so strong and therefore nobody should fear this thing, you know, be defiant. All of those messages that came out of that, uh, I think, has done a further damage to not just, uh, you know, his brand when it comes to people now calling him around the world the American Mussolini because of something that Anthony Scaramucci said on CNN, which is, of course, not a good image. Uh, he might not be aware of that, or some might not be aware of it, but that's what they're calling him. Uh, it's not just bad for his brand, but what does it do to American people, not just the victims of COVID, who, you know, they were plenty strong, they were plenty, they didn't want it to dominate their lives, they just got killed by a terrible virus. Uh, what does it say to them? And what does it say to all of the other Americans who might have been on the fence about their behaviors, who might have just started to put masks on, to see him standing there on the balcony like Mussolini did at the balcony at Piazza Venezia in Rome, defiant. If you put the videos next to each other, it looks like it's the same person. Chin up, you know, this sense of I'm in total control. That that message and then going in without wearing his mask when he's shedding the virus bill, it just says that they're they're not only is no concern for the people inside the White House where there's currently an outbreak, but there's no concern for the millions of Americans who might see that and believe that if they act like him, somehow they will be treated for the virus the way that he was treated, which is not going to happen. That's not, that's not so going to happen. That's not, not going to happen. happen. And, and, and I, I saw the comparison that Scaramucci brought up. That that little episode and, and, and the Truman uh, portfolio last night when he got to the White House for walking up the stairs, huffing and puffing by the way uh, you could see he was trying to control his breathing and he couldn't uh, but th- taking the mask off the way he did was a symbolism of saying I don't need this and neither do you. That's that's essentially what he was telling the American people Absolutely and so you know, to, to the symbolism if you look at a couple of things, leaving the hospital early to put those Secret Service agents in jeopardy driving by his you know, his uh, supporters to get that, I guess, shot of ac- of accolades or that, that sense of he's loved or whatever that was about. That sent a message, of course, that he was he didn't need to be in the hospital. He was perfectly fine to go out. Then he gets out and he says, I could have left two days ago. I felt fantastic. Well, of course you felt fantastic if you're on those kinds of steroids. He's you jacked know, up on steroids. Anybody euphoria. feels like that. Yeah. Well, of course. They lead to a sense of, a, of euphoria. You feel your body is you know, getting help, right? It's feeling good. And so he, he goes by, he does that. But then to go to the White House, and when I talk about how it hurt his brand, not just because of the Benito Mussolini comparison, which some people will, will look at and say, oh, my goodness, he really is a fascist, or he really is trying to be an autocrat. Uh, but also, we saw him labor in his breathing. And I was watching it with someone who said, oh, you know, I don't, do you really believe he ever had COVID? And I said, yeah, look at him. You know, look at him trying to stand there. You could see him counting the seconds, going, how much longer? And so I, uh, I reinforced that I'm strong, but I can stop this. It looked very painful, and it looked like he really is dealing with it. So let's just assume that he 100% has COVID and get the conspiracy theories out of the way. Uh, for him to walk back into the White House without a mask 
and to still not have a masking policy inside the White House, where we are getting, you know, a bigger and bigger list of people who have contact, who have the disease. Uh, it's It just sends such... Um, I'm, uh, uh, I, I'm trying to search for a word here that's appropriate, but it seems as though it's malevolent. It's going to cause people harm. And for what? To project this image of hero, of strong. It, it, it was reminiscent of some of the dear leader messaging we've seen, when, especially when his press secretary, who now has it, posted something of him standing on that balcony and, you know, it's so wonderful. To, I love seeing our president, all that stuff. It felt like dear leader stuff out of North Korea. I'm not suggesting that Trump is Kim Jong-un, but I'm saying some of the symbolism, Bill, some of this, some of this pageantry, some of this stuff that invokes these other images of other dictators uh, is really damaging for the American reputation around the world and sends a really damaging message for their health care. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm not overstating it this morning. This stuff matters, uh, and it's going to matter if he wins again. He, he is really getting carte blanche for these these really dangerous behaviors. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a number of things that we need to unpack here, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time. But the medical message he's trying to send is, I beat COVID. 24 hours after I was in the hospital, I beat it. Well, that's a lie. We know that's a lie. He was jacked up on steroids. As you mentioned, he got a, a medical cocktail that nobody else is even allowed to try in, in the United States or in any other place in the world at this point anyway. So there's that element of it. The other element of it is, is you know, forget about the sycophants, that Dr. Conley and those other folks that were trying to spin this whole thing when they stood outside the Walter Reed Hospital and trying to explain, no, no, he's, he's a wonderful patient, when in fact he'd been on oxygen twice and they were concerned about it, so they put him on medication. Doctors who are experts have all told us, Laura, that the medication that he was on suggests that he has some sort of COVID pneumonia, which is not unusual for people of his age. Uh, you don't get over that in a couple of days either. Uh, plus the fact that we also know that there's always a second wave of COVID inside each individual, which is probably going to happen sometime this week. Uh, he's a 74-year-old obese man that has pre-existing conditions. He's not out of the woods yet. So for him to stand up there and say, I've defeated this, is at best premature, uh, at, at worst, uh, sadly a foreshadow of what might actually happen here. For sure. But, but, his, so but his people, his, 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 lem, his listeners are going to say that and say, I can do that too. I don't need a mask. I don't need to social distance. Look what he did. Well, it's absolutely. It's the worst kind of leadership by example that you can imagine. Uh, and it's and it's going to put all it's almost um, you know this kind of god complex that uh, you know for so long he wouldn't be able to get it and then when he got it he's kind of saying well I took it on for the American people to show how I can defeat it and now it's going to be well I beat COVID he, he was even saying maybe I'm immune now and so he has some sort of I mean he's still in the middle of it and so it does send a terrible message leaders set the example by how they live and what they say and so on all of those fronts this is very damaging as I mentioned internationally this is further damage to the American brand, that this this kind of spectacle is even happening, that we have, nobody really understands the, how well the president is and whether or not, as you point out, he's got a second wave coming. Uh, he's not out of the woods, and that means that the whole world is further destabilized, because we can't get accurate information on this. And for, for you know, the press secretary to go out in front of the media without a mask, and now three people in the press pool have COVID, it's just unconscionable. You know, so beyond the theater and, and the rest of it, they're putting real people's lives at risk. 
and they are putting real risky messages about a disease out there in the world when much of the world is facing a second wave. Uh, so, I mean, we can use all kinds of words to characterize Trump the man, but I think if you read his, his niece's book, which I know you have and I have, uh, yep. he, he needs to show strength all the time. Uh, and so this is, should be expected by now, but uh, we, we need to counter the messaging and make sure that people are getting accurate information about uh, the risk to COVID uh, while we're in the middle of this pandemic, regardless of what he does. Well, and it's, as you mentioned, throwing a monkey wrench into the whole plan. I mean, let's face it, there's a, there's an election coming up in uh, well, less than a month now. Uh, there's a Supreme Court nomination hearing and a confirmation that has to happen. Uh, uh, senators are dropping like flies. White House staff are dropping like flies. And we're not just sure how this is going to go. Laura, as always, great to get your perspective on this. Uh, as they say in the biz, more to come on this, to be sure. Thanks, Bill. Thanks a lot. Laura Babcock, of course, president of Power Group, uh, with her read on what's going on on this. So how is this being perceived, especially around the White House? Uh, because there have been mixed reports about uh, the president's return and the way in which he did this. Let's uh, bring Brian Carmen into the conversation. Brian, of course, uh, is the executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers and political analyst on CNN. Brian, so glad you could join us today. I hope you're staying well. Uh, of course I am. I, I know how to use a mask and social distance, <laughs> unlike uh, members of the White House. And to be honest, uh, we- I'll tell you, if, if even if we didn't have the COVID nineteen pandemic, I would probably social distance and wear a mask at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Always good advice. I'm hearing stories being reported in a couple of different sources that I've read anyway uh, that there's mixed reaction to the president coming back to the White House. Yes, I know there have there are medical facilities there, etc. Uh, but they seem to relish the couple of days that he wasn't around so they could get some work done. I mean, people are getting sick. Uh, the, I'm hearing the West Wing right now is almost vacated with uh, with people. It's so, vacant. There's nobody there. And well, people are scared. And it's, you know, it's bad enough that uh, Kaylee McEnany comes out and gets, you know, three or four of us sick when she's, uh, you know, without a mask and we're wearing a mask. Uh, it's bad enough that Mark uh, Meadows uh, downplays the whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic, but it's absolute lunacy for the president to come out this morning and tweet that it's nothing worse than a flu and we're, we're going to shut our country down for that. And um, There are people that are seriously concerned about his mental health. I have been for many months, but now even members of his own family are questioning his mental health. It's it's a frightening prospect. I, 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 was, I was saying, you know, coming into this, I, I feel like any moment he's going to be like the, a cartoonish Tasmanian devil and take into a whirlwind and go out in the West Wing and then out into the streets screaming and ranting and raving. I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen a number of doctors that have commented about this. Uh, they say, first of all, the COVID, one of the, the side effects that people can suffer from COVID is some disorientation mentally. Uh, they certainly get that from steroids. So there's, you know, strike one, strike two. Uh, plus, there's the pre-existing condition of, of Trump's mental capacity even before he, w- he contracted the disease. So, uh this is the guy who's in charge of the United States of America, the most imp- powerful leader in the world right now, uh, and he may not have his faculties about him. Well, he hasn't had for a while. But, well, <laughs> I mean, that's you make, you make a good point. Yeah, I, I can tell you he's been he's been nuts for a while. But yeah, the, the point is, is I was talking with a uh, infectious disease expert and someone who treats uh, COVID nineteen last night on my podcast, and Dr. Dina Grayson was telling me, look. The steroids are what's causing the euphoria and why he feels like he's so good. You know, he said, I haven't felt this good in 20 years. It's the drugs, pal. And <laughs> the fact yeah. that he's making these statements are also a side effect of, uh, of, of the chemical soup that he's on. He's not out of the woods yet himself. 
Herman Cain, before he died, you know, came out and said, I feel great. Everything's cool. He got it like in, I think it was June 24th. And right up until three days before he died, he was saying how great he felt. We don't know what the real um, diagnosis of the president is or the prognosis because we have not been told the truth. The American people haven't been told the truth. The world hasn't been told the truth. The president of the United States has acted like a banana republic dictator, um, feeding us information that makes it sound like he's real good and then saying that it's parent con- uh, it's a, uh, doctor confidentiality and he doctor patient confidentiality and they can't release stuff that isn't good. So you don't know what to believe, but every doctor will tell you that seven or ten days in after being diagnosed is when the for people his age who have the comorbidity problems, who are overweight, who are aged, that that is the turning point, whether they can go north or south with this disease. So we're stuck listening to him ranting and raving at least until the weekend and maybe in, through Monday. Then after that, we'll know. And if he does get better, the scary part about this is he doesn't understand it's because he's the president of the United States and gets health care that no one else can. And so it doesn't make the disease any less lethal. It just means that he's getting better treatment than anybody else. And he should have some empathy, but he doesn't. No, well, we saw that in spades yesterday. The other quick thing I wanted to touch on with you, too, and it's something that a troubling story that came out uh, that you guys from the White House Press Corps were reporting on is essentially the White House has told the CDC, uh, we're not going to contact trace uh, those people that were there for the, uh, the the big party that they had in the White House to do for the uh, the new nominee for the Supreme Court. God knows how many people have been infected. They're dropping like flies right now. Uh, contact tracing means basically give us who they were so we can find out what's going on. And the White House basically said, no, you don't really need that. I mean, they're they're, they're not just playing the ball game here, Brian. They're they're putting people's lives at risk by doing that. Well, he's done that from day one too. It's True. just the pandemic strips that bare. You can't put people in cages. I mean, he's everything he's done is put people at risk. This is no different. It's just far more lethal and far more widespread. And yes, you're right. I spoke with uh, people who had tested positive that were at that, um, you know, that super spreader at the White House, and they did not know that anyone had tested positive until they saw it in the news. And then they took it upon themselves to test, and then they were told that, you know, that, yes, you tested positive. There's nothing more scary than the fact that that the President of the United States wouldn't inform you of the fact that an event that you went to on his behalf he doesn't care. <laughs> what what happens to you? What does well, that more, tell you about him? More to the point, uh, your colleague in the press corps there, Caitlin Collins from CNN, uh, reported yesterday that uh, the White House was, they were telling staff, don't tell anybody that you've got a positive. We don't want anybody to know about this. And it leaked out anyway. I mean, you guys don't take no for an answer. I get that. Uh, but that was their plan. That was the game plan. I'll go, I'll go you one better. Before that, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, was telling everyone to downplay what was going on, that there was no reason to tell anyone that it was uh, that uh, that there was a chance of getting it. And then afterwards, he told everyone on staff, "If you're sick, I don't want to know." He didn't. He didn't want to know. So he didn't want to be put in a position to tell anyone. That's that's how bad it is at the White House. 
It's bizarre. Uh, listen, we're just about out of time, but uh, I, I want our listeners to find out. What, what's the title of your podcast so they can check you out? Ah, JustAskTheQuestion.com. And right. uh, we had uh, Mary Trump on there talking about her, her beloved uncle <laughs> and some members of the CDC talking about this. It, it's, it's a scary, scary situation. It is. Brian, as always, great to get your insight into this. Thanks for the time today. All righty. Take care. Take care. Brian J. Karam, of course, executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, political analyst for CNN and, of course, his podcast that you can check out as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about vaccine. Uh, and, of course, it's front and center when we see the rising number of new cases that are coming up. We had another death of, of COVID uh, from uh, the Hamilton area uh, just yesterday, sadly. And uh, it continues to go on. But there will be a COVID vaccine. We're sh- sure of that. At least we think we are anyway, based on the evidence we're getting from the experts. Uh, we're not sure exactly when. But we do know this, that even when they finally say, Eureka, we've got it, it's not going to be available to everybody, not at once. So who should get it first? Who goes to the front of the line? I want to bring Chris Bach into the conversation. He is the uh, research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics who's done extensive research into SARS and the 2009 pandemic, a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Chris, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, thank you, Bill. Are we, are we safe to say that there will be a, a vaccine as a matter of when? That's right, yeah. So uh, uh, the timeline's not clear. They're doing these large-scale trials now to look for, um, you know, potential side effects and to make sure it can protect people. Uh, and um, so, so it's on the horizon, but we don't know exactly when, probably sometime in, in 2021 for sure, uh, um, uh, but it could be earlier or later. Yeah, I mean, we heard Dr. Redfield from the CDC about a week or so ago suggesting it probably he has said that the second or third quarter, which puts us pretty much into summertime, if not early fall next year, before it's going to be available for widespread use. That's right, yeah. The other thing that I think maybe is a little misleading to an awful lot of us, Chris, is we hear uh, government announcements. I think the Prime Minister made one about a week or so ago here about you know, 5 million uh, you know, doses of this and of, of whatever the vaccine is going to be from the people that are probably going to be manufacturing this. Uh, and I think it might give us all a false sense of security that, well, boy, this is going to be enough for everybody. Because uh, they actually said that probably enough for two shots for each person. But uh, it's not coming in one big package, is it? That's right. So these things are manufactured, and so they come off the assembly line, and, and, and they come uh, as they're made, they're shipped. And so we have to decide uh, if, if, if we have to give the first batch to somebody, who should we give it to? Uh, and, so, and so that's the question that a lot of uh, you know, countries, states, and provinces are, are asking right now. And this, I, I don't want to create this you know, scene in people's minds of the race to the lifeboats on the Titanic. I mean, this is going to be done in an orderly fashion. But how do you prioritize this? Yeah, so there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, for example, you might want to prioritize healthcare workers because they work in high-risk environments. You might want to prioritize people uh, according to pre-existing conditions. Um, so, so we decided to, to study this question because we think there was a need for some uh, evidence basis for deciding who should get the vaccine first. Uh, and we focused on the specific question of, of age. So does it make more sense to... Uh, to give the first vaccines to the elderly, uh, or should we actually be giving them to other age groups uh, if we want to minimize the total number of deaths from COVID? Historically, Chris, what was the the protocol in situations like this? You've studied all of these things, uh, and and you know 
did they did they lean more towards people in the older demographics at first and say, well, the younger folks are probably able to fight this off? Well, whether it's the flu vaccine, uh, what we've done with SARS research, does does that come in handy? Is it is it uh, is it educational as to how you want to develop what's going to be happening with the COVID vaccine? You know, we can learn bits and pieces from the previous pandemics, but nothing is really a perfect fit for what's happening right now. You know, for example, back in 2003, there was no vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trying to develop it, but but it, it wasn't ready on time, uh, and so those kind of were stored away for you know for future for future reference. Um, um, and now we know from influenza, for example, that um, the, uh, for example, there's a well-known study in Japan where. By they actually re- they, they reduce deaths in the elderly by vaccinating school children, uh, and so so this kind of strategy works because the thinking is that uh, you know children have lots of contacts uh, and contact spread infections. Therefore, if we vaccinate the school kids, we can actually prevent deaths in, in the elderly. Now, in the case of the flu vaccine, we know that the vaccine is less effective in the elderly. Right? It, it's mm-hmm. uh, the effectiveness goes down as as you get older. Um, that could be something that's also true for the COVID vaccine because the vaccine requires that you are able to amount an effective immune response uh, to, to the vaccine uh, antigen, to, to the stuff that stimulates the immune response that's in the vaccine. Uh, and as we get older, our immune systems um, don't work as well. Uh, so, you know, so that as well made us wonder whether or not, you know, maybe vaccinating the young under certain conditions, might be a more effective way to prevent deaths in the elderly for the COVID vaccine, too. Uh, but because the previous examples from SARS and influenza pandemics, they're all different, right? So you can't take them wholesale and say, well, this is what we should do for COVID. That's why we need mathematical models to kind of tell us, well, given what we know about COVID right now today in terms of cases and deaths, and given what we think the vaccine might look like, it was the best situation that applies to us in 2021. How difficult is that, given the fact that, for all intents and purposes, we've only known about this uh, coronavirus, this particular one, uh, for about nine or ten months? Mm. Well, in terms of the spread, we know a lot now because we've had the first wave. Uh, we have estimates of how fast it's transmitted. So uh, we also have good estimates of, of how dangerous it is, how many people die from it. Uh, now, the big unknowns are, of course, the vaccine. We don't know how effective it'll be. So what we did with our model was we looked at different possible scenarios, you know, suppose the vaccine is 40% effective, suppose that it's 50% effective. Uh, and we tried to assess, given all those uncertain uh, scenarios for the vaccine, does that influence our answer or not? And, and that process is called uncertainty analysis. You're analyzing, you know, how do your uncertainties influence your model predictions? Uh, and so we went through that process uh, for, our, for our mathematical model. You just raised something. I, I know we're almost out of time here, but I, I, I got to ask you about this since I've got you on the line here, Chris. Uh, you just talked about the efficacy of the vaccine itself, and uh, you mentioned you know, 30, 40, 50. What's the comfort level to say, yeah, we can mass inoculate people? This is going to this is going to be effective. You know, any efficacy is better than none, right? But but in yeah. terms of the targets that the WHO has has stipulated, we're looking for something that will protect around 60 or 70% of the people who are vaccinated. Um, so that's kind of what we're hoping to achieve. Uh, just so we have that as a bellwether, know we're exactly what we're shooting for. Uh, it's great work that you're doing and very timely work, and I know it's, it's going to be a key part of uh, this process as it starts to roll out over the next little while. Chris, thank you so much for taking some time with us today to explain all this. 
Okay, yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. We'll talk again soon. I know Chris Bach with the University of Waterloo, uh, who is, uh, you know, he's crunching the numbers to, to make sure that this is going to be an effective vaccine and an effective rollout of the vaccine, too. Glad you're with us. The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML here in Hamilton. As we mentioned, uh, with Thanksgiving uh, just a couple of days away right now, and uh, usually a time where families like to get together, uh, the provincial government uh, essentially kind of took the air out of the balloon the other day when they suggest that may not be such a good idea. Here's what Premier Doug Ford had to say. Use your best judgment. I, I've got a lot of calls. Should should I go see my 80-year-old mother for, for Thanksgiving? It, it's, it's about you have to use your judgment. You have to use common sense. And, and that, that really comes down to your, your family members. Do we want you to tighten the circle? 100% we want you to tighten it. Do we want you to stick within the, the same group that you're always around, be it family members? I, absolutely. And I think people know that. I, I, I don't think, you know, you can be any clearer. Tighten things up. Uh, some people are heeding that advice. Uh, some just based on some of the comments I've seen on social media. Not so much. Dr. Todd Coleman is with us now. He's a Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me again. How much, how much should we put into this? I understand because what the Premier said and what uh, Ontario Health Minister Christiane had said is, was the same thing that Dr. Theresa Tam on a, on a national level has been talking about, is that it's not really prudent to go into large gatherings and crowds. Uh, how do you... How do you make a, de- a decision and a, an a, an evaluation as to just how many people should be in there did you, did you go to what one person was suggesting and say whoever is living under your roof that's who you're going to have thanksgiving dinner with and nobody else or, or is there some flexibility here i think that's probably the most prudent uh, uh approach is to to stick with people that live in your household just right now, with the number of cases and the, the number of active cases being at an, pretty much an all-time high, uh, it, it, we can't anticipate that you wouldn't come into contact with someone who may be infectious at this point. So a, a cousin or a, a, an uncle or anybody, an extended family member like that, uh, unless you can actually contact Trace and find out who they've been in touch with, you, you figure you're increasing the risk then? That's right. And, and with families specifically um, thinking about uh, kids and, and teenagers who are in school right now, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, intermixing happening. So social interactions that, that aren't, didn't happen before. And really the idea there is to just be a little bit more overcautious at this point. We've been in school for a month and, and uh, even universities so it would just be make more sense to to keep it light this year. I mean, we've seen evidence of this. That would, I, I think underscores exactly what you're saying. And uh, one of them might have been that event at the White House. I know there's a lot more people there than you get for a family Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, but they had that one event there where they're introducing the new nominee for the Supreme Court. And uh, there's, what, eight or ten people all of a sudden have been testing positive, And a couple of them are in hospital, including the president, of course, as a result of that. So once the virus is there... Uh, God, it, it can spread like wildfire, can't it, With even within a household? That's right. And, and if there's someone who's at uh, a period of, of high infect- infectivity, uh, uh, the probability of infecting everyone in the household is pretty high at that point because of the enclosed nature. Uh, that example you said was outdoors. Uh, they weren't practicing social distancing or wearing masks for the mm-hmm. most part. Uh, so it was clear why transmission occurred, but in the, in the context of a household, 
I don't think most people think that they should be wearing masks. Uh, so there, there's sort of uh, trade-offs with that people might think are okay, but uh, should be uh, really approached with caution. Yeah, I mean, if you have to call, uh, you know, Uncle Sammy and say, yeah, you're invited, but you got to wear a mask and gloves when you're in the house, I'm not so sure that's going to go over very well. No, exactly, and we've seen some pushback with uh, certain individuals with wearing masks. So it better be safe than sorry, I guess, in situations like that when it comes to this. Uh, yet the the other side of this, uh, Doctor, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this argument because I'm certainly getting an awful lot of it, is they say, okay, fine, I can't invite my extended family Thanksgiving dinner, but I can go right now into a bar and sit uh, 10 feet away from somebody who I don't know and I don't know who they've seen, and apparently that's okay. Yeah, and that's, uh, uh, even on my part, I find that uh, slightly confusing in terms of the, the mixed messaging that's going on because uh, you you know more, obviously, about people in your family than you do about people in bar settings, mm-hmm. uh, and the messaging just seems to be conflicting with, with what seems to be allowable, which seems to be, I, I'm allowed to go spend money in public, but you're not doing that when you're at home, when uh, your relatives are over. Are you anticipating, uh, just as we did with the beginning of the school year, just as we did with the beginning of summer, uh, that after Thanksgiving, regardless of what uh, our experts are telling us, we're probably going to see a, an increase in, in the number of cases? Uh, I do anticipate that there's some potential spread that's going to happen as a result. We see people who are just getting together regardless of, of what uh, is being advised from public health and even the premier himself. Um so I, I do anticipate that there will be a potential uptick in, in cases, but what uh, whether that's a, a really high increase or uh, just keeping at the high levels that we're at now with a little bit of increase is, is not, uh, I'm not too sure at this point. How, how, how concerned are you right now, though, Doctor, with the number of cases that we've seen? Well, let's tell, do province-wide here in Ontario. Uh, it's, it's not, I, I guess you can't call it a spike, but there has been a steady increase over the last number of weeks. Yes, definitely. We went to, uh, from a point where we had fewer than uh, or approximately a thousand active cases in the province to several thousand, uh, which doesn't help in terms of spread. It doesn't help in terms of our public health officials being able to uh, contact trace. It, it spreads the, the resources quite thin. Uh, and it, it We've been slightly more fortunate that it manifested itself primarily in groups that are younger, uh, which means that the, the the manifestations aren't as severe as they would be if they were going through long-term care homes again. Uh, but the potential still remains there, especially if you're thinking about a holiday like Thanksgiving where multiple generations are mixing together. Uh, well, be uh, be wary of that, I guess, and we're spending more times indoors, too, and uh, as you've mentioned to us in past discussions, that's uh, also an indicator that there could be more spread on this. So, as uh, the Premier said, uh, use your best judgment in situations like this. Doctor, always great to get your opinion on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks again. Take care. Dr. Todd Coleman, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.